Section 8 of Excerpts from a Bibliography of the Work of Mark Twain by Merle Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Section 8. Notes. Those who value Mr. Clemens's speeches and fugitive efforts will find use for the appended chronology of his various residences and travels as an aid for search in newspaper files and other local sources. 1861-64 in Nevada, in summer of 1864 to San Francisco, 1865 in California, in 1866 a trip to Hawaii, then back to San Francisco, 1867 across the Isthmus to New York, thence to Washington, back to New York, sailing in June on Quaker City trip to the Orient. 1868 in Washington, thence in March to San Francisco, and back in September to New York, in fall of 1869 to Buffalo, balancing between Buffalo and Elmira until the fall of 1870, removing to Hartford. In July 1871 to England, most of 1872 and 1873 between London and Hartford. 1874 to 1877 in Hartford, with summers in Elmira. Winter of 1877 to 78 in Chicago, then to Europe. 1879 in England, France, and Germany, until September, then back to U.S. 1880 until 1890, mainly in Hartford, with summer changes, mostly to Elmira, home of Mrs. Clemens. Most of 1891-92-93-94 in Europe, wintering in Aix-les-Bains, Berlin, Florence, and Paris in turn. 1895 to Europe, then back for a lecture tour of U.S., leaving Vancouver in August for round-the-world trip, reaching England in August, thence to Vienna in September. Early part of 1897 in London, in July to Switzerland, thence to Vienna, 1898 and 1899, mainly in Europe, first in Austria, then in England, with summer of 99 in Sweden. 1900 in New York, with trip to London, then back to New York. 1901 in Riverdale on the Hudson, Saranac in the summer. 1902 in Riverdale, trip to Missouri in May, June, and York Harbor, Maine in the fall. 1903, Riverdale, leaving in October for Italy. 1904, in Florence, Italy, until June, thence to Lee, Massachusetts, and in the winter to New York City. 1905, New York City, Dublin, New Hampshire, in fall. New York City in 1906, winter trip to Bermuda. Returns from Bermuda in spring to Tuxedo, then in July to England, then back to Tuxedo and New York. 1908, early months in Bermuda, thence to New York, and on June 18th to Redding, Connecticut. 1909, in Redding, on November 18th, to Bermuda, returning on December 18th. 1910, on January 5th, to Bermuda, returning to end his career in Redding on April 21st. There are no doubt other excursions of which I have no record. Twain's first article in The Enterprise was a burlesque on a lecture by Chief Justice George Turner in Carson City, the latter part of 1861. Turner was very much of an egotist, and Twain called his skit The Lecture of Mr. Personal Pronoun. 
His first letters from Esmeralda to the Enterprise were signed Josh, and were only three or four in number. He went to work regularly on the Enterprise in the fall of 1862. Mr. John Camden Houghton, the English publisher, justified the inclusion of several sketches in his editions which Mark Twain repudiated by claiming that Mark wrote for the Buffalo Express over the nom de plume Carl Bing. A book to be listed by the future bibliographer of Twain is Albert Bigelow Payne's biography of Mark Twain, which is first to take serial form in the North American Review. Mr. Howells proposes to publish a volume of letters from Mr. Clemens to himself, and another compilation of Twain letters in general is possible. It is claimed that Mr. Clemens wrote a certain skit of exaggerated tendencies entitled A Poet's Epistle to the Society of the Mammoth God. I cannot vouch for it. Sketches old and new on the cover, and sketches new and old on the title page. That's a twister. The following items generally credited to Mark Twain have nothing of first edition interest. The Traveling Innocents, Mark Twain's Pleasure Trip on the Continent, Men and Things, Women and Things, A Little Nonsense, The Primrose Way, An Unexpected Acquaintance, Yankee Drolleries, Idle Notes of an Idle Excursion, English as She is Instructed, Mark Twain's Nightmare, Choice Bits, and Mark Twain's Birthday Book. Mark Twain's scrapbook is a patented pasting device, not a literary production. The literary guillotine was not written or collaborated in by Mr. Clemens. An unexpected acquaintance is merely an excerpt from The Tramp Abroad. To my guests, greeting and salutation and prosperity was the heading of a printed letter given each visitor to Mark Twain's home in Stormfield. It was an appeal for aid to the Reading Public Library. Beadle's Dime Dialogues No. 10 contains Mrs. Mark Twain's Shoe, a four-page dialogue. I cannot think Mark Twain wrote it. Mr. Clemens has been interviewed countless times by newspaper and magazine writers. His refreshing and original views always made good reading for the public. He could be grave or gay as suited the topic. It became so the custom in New York for the editors to send reporters to him on any and all occasions that he was forced to draw the line, limiting them to the day of his departure for some distant point and the day of his return. The same questions arise in regard to interviews as with speeches, chiefly as to accuracy of reporting. I once saw a scrapbook containing newspaper interviews which had been submitted to Mr. Clemens by some ardent admirer, and the author had margined it with his comments. Some had merely a confirmatory OK, others had more extended comments, and but one was denied in toto. Surely Mr. Clemens found a far less percentage of mendacious journalism than others of our public men. On the one interview which he did not choose to remember giving to the press, which purported to be a reply to a society leader's previous article, he margined, in effect, I would be as apt to discuss this with Mrs. A as with a cat. Here is Mark Twain's own idea of the interview as he has met it. I have, in my time, succeeded in writing some very poor stuff 
which I have put in pigeonholes until I realized how bad it was and then destroyed it. But I think the very poorest article I ever wrote and destroyed was better worth reading than any interview with me that was ever published. I would like just once to interview myself in order to show the possibilities of the interview. For those who wish to pursue the question of interviews, a short and typical list is given below, altogether from New York newspapers. 1900, World, June 16th. World, October 14th. Herald, October 16th. World, October 21st. 1901, Herald, January 20th. Journal, March 14th. Journal, October 9th. Herald, October 14th. 1902, Herald, June 15th. World, September 7th. 1903, Herald, June 15th. 1905, American, August 30th. Herald, November 12th. American, November 26th and 28th. World, December 3rd. 1906, Herald, January 30th. Herald, March 11th. American, March 18th. American, December 7th. World, December 16th. 1907, American, May 5th. Press, May 9th. American, May 26th. Times, May 12th. American, June 8th. Sun, June 19th. American, June 23rd. Times, June 30th. World, July 13th. Times, American, World, Tribune, July 23rd. World, August 25th. 1908, Journal, February 23rd. American, April 14th. Journal, September 27th. 1909, World, October 7th. 1910, Journal, December 20th. Here is a short list of periodicals containing the more important articles, not by Twain, but interviews, collections of anecdotes, and the like. Idler, February 1892. Californian, July 1893. Harper's Magazine, May 1896. McClure, January 1898. Ainsley's, August 1900. Review of Reviews, January 1901. Criterion, August 1901. Sketch, March 30, 1904. Metropolitan, March 1904. Gunters, April 1905. Outing, October 1907. Black and White, January 29, 1908. Pacific Monthly, March 1908. Country Life in America, April 1909. Harper's Magazine, May 1909, Bookman, June 1910. Mr. Howells, in My Mark Twain, 1910, gives the story of the dramatization of the Gilded Age, the play being known as Mulberry Sellers or Colonel Sellers. It seems that the original play was the work of an unknown dramatist who adapted from Mark Twain's book. Twain and Howells undertook to write a continuation of that play, it was staged for one week. 
Other dramatizations from Twain books have been Puddinhead Wilson and The Prince and the Pauper. I believe one E. H. House had to do with the dramatization of the latter, but cannot give further facts or tell whether actual collaboration was done by Mr. Clemens, and I have vainly searched for any printed copies of those plays. Belford's magazine for December 1890 gives a small portion of The Prince and the Pauper in dramatic form. Mark Twain is said to have contributed several stories to some publication advertising a certain western railroad at an early period of his career. I cannot confirm this. Good Things, Gathering of Scraps, Side Splitters, and Funniest Fiction have all been wrongly listed as books. They are merely sub-captions for screamers and eye-openers. The original outside paper wrapper of Mark Twain's speeches, 1910, set forth as one of the items in the book the address delivered at the Aldridge Memorial Meeting. That particular speech had been omitted from the contents as no good report of it could be found. The Boston Transcript for November 27, 1872, prints two interesting Mark Twain items. It seems that the steamer Batavia, on which the humorist was returning from England, chanced to pick up some shipwrecked mariners. The passengers of the Batavia wished to memorialize the Royal Humane Society in behalf of the heroic rescuers, and also desired to express their commendations directly to the officers of the ship, and in both cases Mark Twain was persuaded to compose the documents. Once upon a time Eleanor Glynn, she of the weeks, enjoyed a little talk with Mr. Clemens. She straightway sent to the printer her collections of what Mr. Clemens had said, distributing the pamphlet so produced among her friends. Through carelessness on her part, or her press agents, one of said pamphlets turned up in a newspaper office and was sent out for the world to read, greatly to the annoyance and abjurgation of its purported relator, who in haste and with vehemence denounced the publication as a garbled and unauthentic affair. When I list in the index a story, say, An Adventure of Huckleberry Finn, and refer to the book in which it later appears, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, pages such and such, I do not guarantee that the story is included word for word in the book exactly as it appeared in the magazine. Naturally, these stories were edited, and in many cases quite considerable changes made before book publication. Some Mark Twain stories appeared in newspapers, and in changed and edited form were included in one of his books as Innocents Abroad or Roughing It. Later, someone has lifted the story verbatim from the original newspaper in dodging the copyright law, thereby making a differently worded book edition from the authorized version. I have listed no such publications. Here is a contributed note which I have not had opportunity to follow up. Years agone, a murderer by the name of Ruloff was condemned to be hung in New York. He was an eminent scholar, a professor of something or other, and his was a celebrated case. Just before his execution, Mark Twain wrote a letter to the Tribune, which dwelt upon the condemned man's extraordinary learning, set forth how great a loss to humanity his putting away would be, and with an air of sincerity offered to take his place on the gallows, being actuated from altruistic motives. It is said the generous offer was not seriously considered in official circles. 
Another note from a correspondent, this time concerning the Toronto edition of An Idle Excursion. On page 16 a sentence has been left out at the end of the fourth line from the last, marring the climax of chapter one. It should read, Could not fail of the importance. The chronometer of God never errs. This may prove of considerable interest if it should ever be discovered that an idle excursion antedated Punch Brothers Punch. One of my collector friends has a volume edited by or for Eugene Field with title of The Stag Party. A pencil note over one of the stories included anonymously attributes it to Mark Twain. A mere perusal of the story, however, is almost a complete refutation of such a claim. Mark Twain lapsed but seldom into poetry. A memory, in the Galaxy, August 1870, gives his first youthful effort as a parody on Hiawatha. The Miner's Lament also appeared in the Galaxy. The Aged Pilot Man, in Roughing It, is a parody on The Ancient Mariner. And The Mysterious Chinaman, which has never been dignified by book or magazine printing, was adapted from Poe's Lenore. In Memoriam, written in 1897, is a serious and dignified tribute to his daughter Susan. Hot Stuff is merely one of the countless collections of wit and humor, and the Choate Storybook was edited by Will M. Clemens, not Samuel L. Clemens. Both have been credited to Mark Twain in certain checklists. Ward, Locke, and Company's edition of Mark Twain, some of them in what was termed Beaton's Library, are invariably reprints of earlier English issues. In his preface to Innocence Abroad, Mark Twain refers to letters written to Daily Alta, California, New York Tribune, and the New York Herald, which he afterward incorporated in the book above mentioned. Most of these letters appeared in 1867 in the journals named, but I have not had the opportunity to obtain the exact dates. Several newspaper articles, notably in the Buffalo Express, were incorporated in Roughing It, and it is said that the New York Sun printed letters later used in A Tramp Abroad. Mr. Clemens' attitude toward illustrators and college men was typical of newspaper editors of his time. Since then employers have learned to recognize and even stimulate merit in those unfortunate classes. Dan Beard contributed the following to the New York American concerning his first meeting with Mark Twain to discuss the illustration of a book. Mr. Beard endeavors to give in type a representation of Mark's peculiar drawl. Mr. Beard, I do not want to inflict any mental agony upon you nor subject you to any undue suffering, but I do wish you'd read the book before you make the pictures. I assured him that I had already read the manuscripts thoroughly three times, and he replied by opening a prominent magazine at his elbow to a very beautiful picture of an old gentleman with a smooth face which the text described as having a flowing white beard, remarking as he did so, from a, a casual reference to the current magazines, I did not suppose that was the usual custom with illustrators. 
Now, Mr. Beard, you know my character of the Yankee. He is a common, uneducated man. He's a good telegraph operator. He can make a Colt's revolver or a Remington gun, but he's a perfect ignoramus. He's a good foreman for a manufacturer, can survey land and run a locomotive. In other words, he has neither the refinement nor the weakness of a college education. In conclusion, I want to say that I have endeavored to put in all the coarseness and vulgarity into the Yankee in King Arthur's court that is necessary, and rely upon you for all that refinement and delicacy of humor which your facile pen can depict. Glad to have met you, Mr. Beard. Everything that Mark Twain wrote did not come to the public. The temptation for an author of assured success to get real money for inferior stuff must be great, but Mark Twain laid aside a chestful of manuscripts as unworthy, and no doubt destroyed many others. An instance in point is given by Dan Beard. It was before Webster and Company failed that Ward McAllister's book, Society as I Have Found It, appeared, and when he sauntered into my studio one day I said, Mr. Clemens, have you read Ward McAllister's book? Yes, have you, he replied. Indeed I have. I have read it through several times, and intend to read it again. It is one of the most humorous books I ever read. That's so, said Mark. That's so. Now I will tell you something. I spent three months writing a satire on that book of Ward McAllister's, and when I got through I again read McAllister's book, and then my satire, and then tore the blamed thing up. Some things are complete in themselves and cannot be improved upon, and I take off my hat to McAllister. To show Mark Twain's relation to the physical appearance of his books, letters from his illustrators are of interest, says Lucian Walcott Hitchcock. I went to Mr. Clemens's house to see about the horse's tail. He had a little old photograph of one of his children, who had died when a child, and he wanted me to work that little face into the picture of the little girl in the story. I asked him if there was any further suggestion he wanted to make about what scenes of the story to take, etc., but he said, No, it's just this way about it. I find the artist knows more about what will make a good picture than I do. What I thought a good subject for a picture isn't worth a hang, and something I should not have thought of at all makes a very good one. So I will leave all that with you. 
at the same time he gave me a photo of the cats he wanted me to use in the drawing of the old general when the horse's tail drawings were finished i took them down for him to see he came into his study in a bath-gown and pipe there was no place to put the drawings where they could be seen but on the floor so the old man dropped down on the floor like a child to look them over he was pleased with them all far beyond their merits he thought the drawing of the child looked like the original and of the moonlight he said a very eloquent horse dan beard writes i would rather work for mark twain than any man i ever met first because his writings are so full of imagination so full of ideas that each paragraph would make a good subject for a picture a cartoon or an illustration second because mark twain himself had a quicker perception and a keener appreciation of thoughtful earnest work than any author for whom i have worked or met third because he was never niggardly with his praise never waited for one to ask him how he liked the illustration but of his own volition and without suggestion from the artist he would take time to sit down and write a personal letter of commendation for the work which pleased him fourth because he did not try to draw the pictures for the illustrator himself as do most authors and publishers said he dan if a man comes to me and says mr clemens i want you to write me a book i'll write it for him but if he comes to me and says he wants me to write a book and then tells me what to write i'll say dang you go hire a typewriter when i had finished the illustrations for the now rare webster edition of the yankee in king arthur's court mark sent me a dignified courtly letter of encouragement and commendation when i finished the book he wrote there are hundreds of artists who could illustrate my other books but there is but one who could illustrate this one what a lucky day i went netting for lightning bugs and caught a meteor live forever mark mr clemens had ideas of his own on the proper illustration of certain books and insisted on their being carried out the contract for pictures to accompany the separate edition of eve's diary had actually been let to a certain artist whose work had hitherto given great satisfaction when mark interposed with a demand for a different style of work for that particular book it was with considerable effort that the exact style of decorative and allegorical pictures he desired was obtained then again for joan of arc he wished nothing humorous but suggested that the pictures convey the sense of mysticism and allegory which he claimed was lacking or only partially indicated in his text claims have been made that the montreal eighteen eighty one edition of the prince and the pauper was the first printing the toronto eighteen eighty two edition of the same title relates in a preface the history of the montreal edition this preface states that mr clemens resided two weeks in canada previous to the montreal appearance 
and demanded copyright protection as a Canadian for his book. The courts denied the validity of this procedure, and the author fell back on the plea of previous publication in England. This would seem to establish the priority of the English issue. All Mark Twain collectors have noted the peculiar and distinctive form taken by the books bearing his name, beginning with The Innocents Abroad and continuing through the larger and more important works. This was due to the more or less accidental entering by Mark Twain of the subscription book field, not usually invaded by the better authors in those days. Nowadays the book agent commonly offers a set of your favorite author. In those times, before the era of cheap processes of engraving and printing, the agent offered a single book destined to repose and state upon the parlor table, which was apt to depend more upon the then plenteous number of its engravings and the splendor of its binding than upon any great literary merit within. In fact, most of these books were of the instructive order, travel, history, and the like. The American publishing company to whom The Innocents Abroad was offered had made a specialty of these subscription books. Mr. Elisha Bliss, the head of the firm, signed a contract to produce Mark Twain's work, but on seeking the approval of his board of directors, met with opposition. The directors fancied that the humorous qualities of Mark Twain's style would interfere with the sale of the work as a book of travel and it was only at Mr. Bliss's avowal of faith in the author and a personal offer to take over the company's contract that the work proceeded. The American Publishing Company had just made a successful campaign with Mr. Richardson's Beyond the Mississippi. Naturally the new book took the form of the previous success with similar typographical features and scheme of illustration. People in those days would not pay for blank paper and wide margins says Mr. Frank Bliss, who was associated with his father in the production of the books. They wanted everything filled up with type or pictures. When we saw after the first issue of a book a space of several inches at the end of a chapter left blank, we generally supplied a cut to fill it in. Mark Twain had nothing at all to do with the matter except the furnishing of some photographs and to smile and approve of the drawings that he happened to see. He was thoroughly well pleased, and expressed himself so many times with the illustrating of his books. Elisha Bliss, Jr. was a man of fine literary and artistic perceptions who thoroughly appreciated and enjoyed Mr. Clemens's humor and writings, and so was able to give many valuable directions in the making of the pictures. The artist, Mr. True W. Williams, with the help of an occasional other artist, made the drawings as far down as Puddenhead Wilson. He could put Mr. Clemens's ideas into a picture perfectly. He could make serious and lovely pictures as well as comic. He was a well-read and pleasant fellow, whose convivial habits frequently led him astray, but these were overcome in the latter years of his life, I am happy to say, causing Mr. Clemens to declare that he was the greatest combination of hog and angel he ever saw. Following the evident trail of form and illustration from the Richardson book on through The Innocents Abroad, we find the same firm of engravers employed, Fay and Cox. This firm had its principal artist, Mr. True Williams, referred to above. After a time the American Publishing Company disregarded the engraving firm, dealt with Williams direct, 
took him down to Hartford and kept him steadily employed for a number of years. He made most of the illustrations for the Gilded Age, and illustrated sketches new and old, and adventures of Tom Sawyer in their entirety. After the Webster Interregnum, when the American Publishing Company came back into the Mark Twain field, Mr. Frank Bliss took charge of the production of the books. Mr. Clemens was not in America in 1894, when Puddinhead Wilson appeared, or in 1897, when Following the Equator was put on the market. Therefore Mr. Bliss alone determined the form of those books. He originated the idea of the marginal illustrations for Puddinhead, and hired the various artists who contributed to Following the Equator, practically all the latter set of artists being retained to contribute pictures for the autograph edition. In Nevada, Twain wrote for the Virginia City Enterprise, in California for the San Francisco Call, the Daily Alta, the Sacramento Union newspapers, and the Californian and Overland magazines. In Buffalo for the Express, and his last salaried literary labor was for the Galaxy magazine in 1871. End of section 8. Notes.